When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's been quite a week so far, hasn't it? Since the airing of that interview on Sunday night in America, the collateral damage uh, is still reverberating around the world. This morning, we're hearing that the Queen is already holding peace talks with Harry. The BBC say that they were warned by Meghan's PRs not to use any old white men, in their words, to analyse the performance. Piers Morgan's fallen on his sort of Good Morning Britain and 200 million quid's been wiped off the share value of ITV. The boss of the Society of Editors has also quit for defending the British media from charges of racism. So far, so good, eh, Makes She's like a one-woman wrecking ball, and all that so that she can spread compassion and reveal her truth around the world. Heaven help us if she ever decides to seek revenge. I wonder what that will look like. The woke world, of course, is now in full flow, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be talking to Nigel Farage about why that sentence has convinced him to begin fighting back and leave party politics behind. 0344 499 Coming up, we'll also be catching up with Simon Calder, our favourite travel guru, with the latest news from Spain and Greece. And we'll be checking in with Helen Dale, too, on whether Chris Filt, the Justice Minister, was right to say longer jail terms don't actually stop crime. As ever, of course, uh, we need to hear from you. Uh, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? And if your children are back at school, how are they getting on? Are they being forced to wear masks or are they doing a bit of revolting? 0344 499 1000. Labour are also launching their local election campaign, uh, which should be a pretty good laugh. And we'll be asking Brendan Chiltern what he makes of his party's horrendous position in the polls. Plus, the Donna Harvey is here with all the news from the US of A as well. 0344 499 1000 is the number. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Let us, without further ado, check in with Mr Nigel Farage, former leader of the Reform UK Party, former leader of the Brexit Party, now uh, an anti-woke warrior, I think, Nigel. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. I've stood down from party politics after almost 30 years, uh, Mike, and I think I deserve a medal for that, really. I think you do. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> because party politics is never an easy place. And the smaller the party, the newer the party, the more difficult it is. But look, I got into politics, you know, fighting elections to get us out of the European Union. And I would like to think I contributed a fair bit towards that goal. That is now done. Mm. It's history. Sure, we must tidy up what's happening in Northern Ireland. Um, some, you know, border issues in Calais and Rotterdam, the fishing industry. Yeah, I get that. But it's done. Mm. We've left. The vaccine rollout means there'll be no debate about us ever rejoining. No. But what really worries me is the indoctrination that our young people are put through, not just at university, not just at secondary school. It starts even down in primary schools. We're not teaching critical thinking. We're teaching that one side of an argument is good. The other side of an argument is evil. Yeah. Um, And these culture wars need to be fought. I want to fight them and blow me down, you know, 
the, the very day, well, basically, <laughs> that I say, I'm not going to do party politics and Meghan and Harry give this interview. I was going to say, you couldn't have picked a better week, really, could you? Because it's extraordinary. And as I was saying, you know, the kind of collateral damage that's been caused yeah. by this interview. As I said, I mean, heaven help us if she ever decides to wreak revenge on anyone. If this is her version of spreading her truth and her compassion around the world, you know, there's literally buildings falling over right, left and centre. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, the, the the Piers Morgan thing, I mean, Piers can be very dogmatic. I don't always agree with him, but I must say on this, he was perfectly entitled to hold that opinion. Mm. And, and yeah, 41,000 complaints to Ofcom and all the rest of it. But ultimately, it's the cowardice of ITV, isn't it? It really that, is. That's what this is really all about. Mm. You know, you can look at America, you can see Newsmax and Fox News. You can look at Australia and see Sky News Australia, you know, where there are commentators that will say what they think, give their opinion. It's then up to the public to decide who right. do they believe. Who do they believe? So, I, you know, I think Piers has been very badly done by. But, you know, reflecting now, a few days on from the interview, the more I look at it, the less truthful the whole thing was. She said her passport was taken away. Yeah. She went on foreign holidays. Poor little Archie mm. didn't get a prince, wasn't entitled right. as the Queen's great-grandson. And on and on and on. It was a litany of lies. It was a theatrical performance. But her defence, you see, her defence is that she was suffering from mental illness. Mm. Well, certainly in the interview she wasn't. She was very much in control. Mental illness is a serious problem, and I'm not in any way going to downplay that issue. But for people to claim they've got it in order for no one to criticise what they say equally isn't right either. And, And I... I see the whole thing as being deeply manipulative um, on behalf of Meghan. Uh, I see Harry just being a weak man ruined. Mm. Um, and the knock on, as you said, the collateral damage is quite extraordinary. Well, the one that I find even more bizarre than the Piers situation, because we know, as you say, Piers can be bombastic. Um, he certainly yeah. doesn't like to be pushed around. And I detected knowing him as I do, that he was basically at the end of his tether. So I think the Alex Beresford incident was kind of the latest in a long line of them saying to him, this is what we want you to say, this is how we want you to say it. And I think he just got fed up at the end of the day. But Ian Murray, the guy who's the head of, or was the head of the Society of Editors, for him to quit on the basis of him not apparently saying the right thing while uh, defending the British press from accusations of racism is extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, I really was amazed by that. And I wonder where that pressure came from. Um, I'm very surprised that he submitted to it. Uh, well, apparently it came from the Huffington Post and the Guardian, who uh, are, so mem- what? are members of the Society of Editors. Well, so what? Exactly right. I mean, as I said, So what? To, if I they said, want to leave, yeah. if they want to leave, they can, you know, they can leave. Mm. I, I mean, they, I mean, they are the minority point, publications, as far as I'm concerned. Well, very much so. But the whole point of a free press is that you allow diversity of opinion and yet in this whole work woke diversity agenda everything is allowed apart from diversity of opinion now i'm very disappointed uh, that mr murray went i must say yes but the thing is uh, i hope uh, and and pray basically nigel that that there is a fight back going on that most ordinary people and why we are so, so successful here at talk radio is because we talk to ordinary people we speak their language as very much as you do and as you did during um you know the referendum and ever since and the point about the whole kind of uh, Brexit argument is that in the end, common sense won it. In the end, all of the der- terrible things that we said, well, we were told were going to happen, haven't happened. And that conversation, as you say, has been done now. It's, it's been had. And I'm hoping yeah. this will go the same way. Well, I mean, on this issue, Mike, you know, I'm, you know, we've we, we, we've argued over the last year about lockdown and 
I think you and I have been very sceptical about mm. lockdown and perhaps we've been on that one in a slight minority opinion. Yeah. But hey, you know, we're entitled to say what we think. But on this one, on this one, the BBC, Sky, ITV and Channel 4 are massively out of touch with where this country is. Quick snap opinion poll yesterday by a majority of two to one. People want their titles stripped from them. Mm. Frankly, most people I speak to never want to see them back on our shores again. How dare they? How dare they? Trash the Queen. Yeah. Coming up for a 70th anniversary of head, not just of this country, but actually the figurehead mm. for the Commonwealth, a global organisation with 2.3 billion people living in it, most of them black and Asian. So the charge of racism against this royal family doesn't stand up. And how cowardly to say that someone made this comment about what colour the baby may be and then not name who the person mm. was. And the Duke of Edinburgh, who's been by the Queen's side on all those trips to all those foreign countries, year after year after year, relentlessly, tirelessly, in hospital, 99 years old and very seriously ill. I mean, the whole thing is just so self-indulgent. Mm. Uh, it, it beggars belief. Uh, but frankly, it does. It, frankly it, for Harry, for Harry to allow this to happen, to his family, I, I really do believe is despicable. I think so too. And and the idea as well um, uh, that he would allow himself to be sort of basically removed from every single thing that he knows. You know, he talks about, you know, this terrible family. Um, he, he says his, his, his own father doesn't take his calls. His brother is trapped in a kind of cage of his own making. I mean, for someone who doesn't want to have the media intruding into his life, he's given yeah. away an awful lot of family secrets, hasn't he? Yes, his brother and father are trapped in a cage. It's called being born a member of the royal family. Mm. And you're born with enormous privilege, but also a very large duty as well. Yeah. Opting out, opting out is not what you're supposed to do. You are born into this. And I, I must say, you know, when I saw Harry being made at 12 years old to walk through the streets of London behind his mother's coffin, I mean, I, I could barely watch it, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, it was horrible, horrible. But he did find his role in the world, and it was in the army. Mm. And after he left active service, he took on these honorary military positions, which he seemed to love, and they all seemed to love him. And not just the serving armed forces, all the veterans too. He became the champion for the armed forces in this country, the Invictus Games that came with it, and he was loved for all of it. And he's now walked away from all of that, never, ever to return. Yeah. Uh, and I, I could feel sorry for him, but I just don't. I think that time has passed. I think a lot of people feel like you do, Nigel, and like I do, quite angry about the yeah. way that he has trashed his own family and his own country, let's face it. I mean, they're basically selling that Britain uh, is a racist nation. And if that was the case, then why on earth are there so many people coming here from all over the world? They want to live here because it's one of the most tolerant countries in the entire world. Yes, and yet in America now we've got, uh, you know, because Meghan and Harry had movers advantage, they were the first people putting out their side of the argument. You know, you've got Hillary Clinton and all the West Coast celebs and even mm. the White House, you know, you know feeling Meghan's pain, you know, as a victim, uh, but trashing the reputation of the UK into the process. The whole thing is a disgrace. And I must say that Oprah Winfrey, who has a reputation for being this fantastic journalist interviewer, I wonder what she's going to say when she realises that everything that was told was untrue. Mm. You know, the wedding, did they really get married in the backyard? No. 
by the Archbishop of Canterbury three days before without any witnesses present. It just, none of this, mm. the more you drill down, none of this is actually true. And I wonder whether Winfrey might just reflect, hmm, have I really done a good job of this? Mm. Yeah, and also the idea that she sort of asks uh, Harry about his family, but doesn't mention Megan's family at all, <laughs> doesn't bother asking her. And then when, when, when Megan goes, uh, I lost my father, really? I thought you just cut him off. I didn't think you lost him. Yes, well, it'd be quite fun, wouldn't it, if Oprah was to interview Meghan's half-sister and Meghan's father. Well, yeah. we, we, we may then get a very different, different interpretation of who Meghan is. You know, the day of the royal wedding, and I was doing some commentary on it for one of the American networks, and the day of the royal wedding, I was astonished when Oprah Winfrey arrived. And then I discovered that Meghan Markle had only ever met her once before. Now, yeah. how many people invite someone to a wedding they've only briefly met once before. Right. And I think the plan was there from the very beginning. Oh, no question. Get the title, don't do the job, and use it for maximum financial benefit. I think all of this was planned. I think that the interview, I'm convinced there was a big PR agency behind that. They practiced it. They drilled it. Um, and, and, and I, you know, Piers Morgan said he didn't believe a word she said. Well, I have to say, I'm not too far behind. No, quite. Well, also, we learned today in the papers that the, the BBC were in receipt of a of a memo from the PR company in charge to say, please do not use any old white men uh, to critique this performance. Well, I'm sorry. Um, the BBC, as much as I've, I've failed to see what the point of it is anymore, uh, I, I, if I were them, I'd say, well, don't tell us what to do. Thanks very much. Indeed. We'll use who we like. No, if you're white, you must hate yourself, yes. regardless of what age or class or sexuality you are. White people must go through a period of self-loathing um, and we must promote all other races and religions and differences so that we finish up with a society completely divided where people feel enmity towards each other. Wouldn't it be better to say, treat everybody absolutely equally and the same mm. in a free and fair society? I mean, Martin Luther King must be turning in his grave. You know, he said, I want my four children to be judged by the content of their character, not by the colour of their skin. And we're now judging everybody mm. by the colour of their skin. It is, Mike, a disaster. It really is. But it's also a kind of cynical ploy. And I'm not quite sure who the beneficiaries of it are, but my suspicion is that it's an industry now, that there are people getting very wealthy off the back of all of this. There are lots of people getting appointed to jobs which have got the word diversity in them. Uh, they're making oh, a pretty yeah. penny. Uh, we're getting lots of new sort of think tanks starting up, funded by uh, the wokists and the millionaires that like to pretend to be champagne socialists. You know, And we have to somehow work out who these people are in order to defeat them, don't we? Well, look, I mean, as you say, there is an industry around it. Um, uh, but also, I mean, you talk about money. You know, there is one financier who has put $20 billion into these kind of causes. Mm. $20 billion. Think about it. I mean, a British general election, you know, the Conservatives might spend $20 million. Mm. This guy has put $20 billion into all of these causes. So there are lots of people out there earning very, very big money on the back of all of yes. this. Um, but I won't mention his name, not today, because if you even mention his name, 
they shout you down and scream at you and accuse you of prejudice. Yes. It's quite extraordinary. It is quite extraordinary. It's a bit like the green industry, isn't it? I mean, there is there is now no doubt in my mind that there are people who, and I see them on TV all the time, being quoted as you know climate change um, sort of experts, but they're not actually climate change experts. What they are is employees of various organisations which are funded in some way, take cases by government money, in other cases by private money. Um, but it, but it's, I mean, it's almost as though there's this kind of, you know, shadow economy going on, which is kind of the charities, you know, these think tanks, you know, foundations all over the place, and they're literally manipulating everyone. Yes, but here's the extraordinary thing, Mike. Yeah, I and mean, I, I agree with all of that, but here's the extraordinary thing. It's the extent to which the big corporate companies are going along with it. Mm. Big corporate companies like ITV yeah. are going along with all of this. Goldman Sachs going along with all of this. And, and there seems to be some real cowardice in the boardroom. The mob get to them. You know, they get 50,000 emails overnight saying that, you know, they've advertised on a show with a presenter that's given an opinion they don't like. Mm. And the advertising department go, oh, my God, everybody hates us. Yeah. Um, it, 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 really, we need to see some more leadership from the business community too but we're not getting it right mm. at the moment and the big tech companies have to have a mention as well don't they well of course they do and you know the absolute power um that those companies have and and there is no question that we are beginning to see you know quite regular shadow banning on big social media platforms if anybody diverges on the views of the World Health Organization. If anybody says anything about another group of people, that can be construed to be hateful speech. And so half a dozen rich billionaires in San Francisco Bay can really decide what most of the world reads and sees. And that mm. is equally very disturbing. Yeah, absolutely it is. So how is your um, new role going to kind of manifest itself without having to ask you to give too much away, Nigel? Because obviously we've got the Reform Party will be run, I'm sure, very capably by Richard Tice. The, the yes, local absolutely. elections are starting up soon. We've got Labour launching their manifesto today, uh, which, as I said earlier, we're not going to bother covering it. We'll just have a laugh later. Um, yeah. But the point is, um, how, how will you uh, be, be kind of going forward? What will you be doing? Well, I mean, I'm one week into this project, Mike. I'm talking to you today. Um, if I look a bit baggy-eyed, it's because I've been up all night. Right. I've been up all night doing American TV, you know, fighting back yep. um, against the so-called truth of Meghan Markle. Mm. Um, I am I'm, I'm working very hard on social media. I've had millions of views of the things that I've seen this week. But I do intend over time to expose more and more what is happening in education, what is happening to our young people, and to fight a battle to get us back to critical thinking. Young people need to be shown both sides of an argument and make their own mind up. I'm not pretending this is going to be easy, mm. but I'm going to have a go. Well, I'm going to start uh, with the first question on that then, because uh, this is the week that lots of school children went back to school. Many of them uh, are being forced to wear masks, uh, not by law, because it can't be made uh, compulsory, yeah. but by this kind of a nudge politics, I suppose you might call it. I know lots of parents have been in touch with me saying they've been told, they've been sent videos by their schools saying that you've got a moral duty to protect everybody else and wear a mask for up to seven hours a day. I find that quite extraordinary. Yeah, it's horrible. But one thing we can say that's good is at least the kids are back. Uh, it's going to be a long time before the pubs are open. <laughs> the I, got a, I got an email from the Wheat Chief today saying they're taking bookings. 
<laughs> well, that's good. Uh, look, at least the schools are back, Mike. That I, 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 rather than getting drilling into that detail, at least the schools are back. Mm. Let's at least celebrate something yes. about the evening lockdown. Yes, absolutely right. Well, great to talk to you, Nigel. We wish you Thank well. You. Uh, we'll always be, of course, uh, a willing a, a part, partaker of uh, whatever you have to say uh, against the wokists. Nigel Farage uh, now leading a new crusade. Uh, he got us out of Europe. Now he's going to try and get us out from under the yoke of woke, which is terrible, isn't it? Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Hey, good news for Boris Johnson, by the way, because from the 12th of April, apparently, uh, weddings attended by up to 15 people uh, can start up again. So he's got no excuse, has he? Carrie will be dragging him down there and going, come on then, Boris, how about another wedding party? Why not indeed? Lots of you, of course, uh, want to talk to me about all manner of things. The woke agenda, the yoke of woke, as I'm calling it. Uh, Very interesting times because, of course, all over the papers this morning, various different uh, things being said about what happened uh, in the the wake of the woke uh, yoke, if you see what I mean. Um, Because Piers Morgan, of course, is now thinking about where he might end up. He might end up here. You never know. I mean, I don't know that. I mean, I don't know anything. But um, I would not be surprised to see Piers Morgan walking around uh, inside of News UK at some point. Let's talk to Simon Calder, travel editor at The Independent. See what he knows. Simon, a very good morning to you. Uh, I can't help you with Piers Morgan. Um, but well, I can I, tell you he's uh, definitely uh, not going uh, to The Independent. Uh, well, no, he'd have to join me in my um, in my uh, dungeon of doom here. <laughs> uh, this is as far as I get to travel these days. No, I was but, led uh, to believe that you were going to be reporting in from somewhere glamorous. Yeah. I was going to be out and about in Hyde Park in Kensington in central London, but mm. very sadly, I, I tested it out and the wind was so extreme. Oh, that, it is um, very windy, yeah. Uh, that it would have all gone, all gone. I, I think, as we call it in the travel industry, a bit tango uniform, as my excellent lighting <laughs> system has just done. Yes. No, I rather like your Dungeon of Doom, though, because, I mean, that's kind of where we all are, isn't it? We're all in a yes. Dungeon of Doom, hoping against hope that at some point in a few months' time we might be able to go somewhere. Yeah, but I mean, you've got quite nice people in your dungeon of doom. I'm here on my own, but uh, there we are. Well, listen, I can't speak for why that's happened to you, Simon, but listen, um, (laughs) I wish you all the best. Now, what can you tell us about the the travel industry? Okay, right. So loads and loads and loads going on. Um, So, well, where to start? The MPs, as you've just reported in the news um, on the Transport Select Committee, are demanding that the government actually says... Here's what we're going to do about unlocking travel. Um, So the Transport Select Committee got in the aviation minister last week and said, right, um, Mr. Courts, can you tell us what's going to happen? And he said, well, I can't really. We're going to do this report on the 12th of April and we're going to give it to the prime minister. Whether or not it's going to be made public, I do not know. And the the MPs were basically just saying, well, this is... um, Uh, Not good enough Mm. because airlines and passengers have to be able to plan. So please make sure that you actually deliver to the public what's happening on the 12th of April. Of course, worth absolutely stating that all overseas travel is completely illegal at the moment. And um, it will remain so, uh, well, uh, certainly until the 17th of of May, Mm. the government has made absolutely clear. At the same time as that's happening, you've got... Mark Drakeford, the Welsh First Minister, saying the prospect in two months' time that you and I, Mike, could go abroad is frankly terrifying for him. Not not because of what we might do while we're there, but what we might bring back. Mm. He he just says, you know, we cannot. It's not go very back helpful, to- that is it? 
Well, um, he's, he says, you know, look at what happened last summer. Um, they'll be bringing it all back in and we don't want that. Oh, um, hang on, what happened last summer? I mean, I seem to remember last summer was all right, wasn't it? Well, oh, right. Well, you say that. I, I vaguely remember going abroad. It was. Um, I, I remember it being sunny and lovely and uh, not much happened, I remember you uh, reporting that, into us at the top of the rock. Oh, well, that was actually December. But I've also talked to you, for example, from Venice. From Venice, you, yes. I remember the crash uh, of the where, boats. From, oh, from, yeah, you, the, were in, the, you were in Tuscany, I believe. Uh, yes. So, so frankly, um, I, yeah. There, so it's there all your lot. fault, Simon, apparently. Well, well, yes, I've, I've been tested quite a lot and yeah. I'm always negative. But the, the, um, uh, there, there is very much the idea around in Wales and indeed in Scotland that everything would be all right if it wasn't for these blinking people who keep insisting on going abroad. Mm. And of course, aviation absolutely spread coronavirus around the world in uh, very, very short order. So, so there's a lot of concern and you know, a, a, a worry that um, that abroad is going to be somehow one uh, a place with, with, which carries great risk. And of course, the UK way ahead of every other European country in terms of its uh, vaccine yes. rollout. And so shouldn't that, I mean, I know that you're not a medical man, but and neither am I. But surely that should make a difference from last summer. And I don't like the way that these politicians keep comparing it to last summer because last summer we didn't have a vaccination. Well, I I kind of agree with you, Mike. Um, and Heaven's actually, sake. I know. Um, it, it, actually, uh, a lot of countries, of course, as you've been covering on talk, are mm. saying, "Mike, come over here. You know, as soon as you've had your jab, we'll let you in. No testing, no quarantine. In you come, my old friend." Mm. Um, because obviously the Brits are seen as a good bet. Yeah. But they're actually going beyond that, and I think we will see quite quickly um, countries saying. Actually, and, and let's desperately hope that the coronavirus cases, the hospitalizations and crucially the number of deaths continues to fall. We'll get to the stage where actually we've gone from the sick man of Europe to the um, golden girls and boys of summer and everybody wants us there. Right. Um, at the same time as other stuff going on, Seychelles says two weeks today they are going to open up to anybody because they've vaccinated themselves against tourists. Right. So. It's a very, very messy picture. But, of course, you get that complexity. The current regime for coming back into the country, which involves uh, a test before you take off for, for the UK, a test when you arrive and another test on day eight, and add in the so, so self-isolation as well. There's an awful lot to uh, um, disentangle mm. um, before any of us can happily just um, nip across to Europe for some fun. Yes. I mean, I was talking this morning just before we started the show about the... Um, I got an email from one of the pubs in Borough Market saying they're, they're taking bookings, and I was I was suggesting that presumably they're not going to have the QR codes to go into pubs that they did have, because not only, one, did nobody really pay any attention to it, but it didn't really work. So I assume that's not going to be the case. Will the travel industry similarly, when it opens up on May the 17th, would you expect there not to be quarantine any longer for people going away and coming back in or what? Uh, I think we will see uh, the, the, the following happening. Um, I think testing to come back into the UK will be a thing, but it may actually be. There's been actually overnight a government U-turn. Mm. Um, they have always said up until this morning, no, you cannot possibly test on arrival. It's an absolute waste of time. Mm. Suddenly from this morning, they say, yeah, get a test on arrival. Really good idea. Um, what, so actually at, at the airport? At the airport. And of course, 
you know, if 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 you you know, if if France, for instance, says, Mike, we'd love you to come over, uh, but be a good lad and have a test um, at Heathrow on your way out, mm. or uh, Folkestone before the Euro Tunnel or whatever, mm. um, and that you know cost twenty quid and took ten minutes, you wouldn't particularly mind about that. Um, and similarly, if the UK can just say okay so we're going to make you all have a test on arrival um that would be bearable if it was all kind of part of the airport experience yeah. queue up there. as long queue as you didn't there. have to queue up for two hours to do it or something well six hours is, is what heathrow's complaining about this morning and um, really? also news just in yes I, I don't know if you or any of your um lovely listeners will remember 1966 it was a good year in a number of respects particularly for the football team yeah well heathrow is now Back to the future, its passenger levels are now at 1966 levels. Blimey, so that is not 55 news, years back. Well, well I um, don't remember it particularly, but I sort of remember it because I've seen a picture. There's a picture of me um, being carried up the steps of a BEA aircraft, uh, which was taking me to Guernsey for my holidays when I was about two. Wow. About that? No, that yeah. is amazing. Um, yeah. uh, presumably, it's commanding quite a lot on on eBay. I imagine. Is it? <laughs> well, there's a lot of pictures yeah. of me on eBay that command a lot of money, but there's not, <laughs> not not from when I was a child. Um, but uh, but yeah. So so what are you saying about the six hour queues? Though I mean, they seem to be having a lot yeah. of trouble at Heathrow with their technology, don't they? Well, all right. Here's exactly what's happening. It's the passengers' fault. That's according to the head of the UK border force at Heathrow. Mm. He says. You passengers, you know you've got to get a test before you're even allowed on a plane to the UK. Yeah. You're also supposed to book two tests for when you get here. Right. And you've been really bad. And while the airport's the airline at the other end has sort of checked that you've got the test before departure, they haven't checked that you've pre-booked this. So instead of everyone whizzing through the um, e-gates, mm. we've got to check everybody to make sure that they've got their test booked. If they haven't, we have to sort them out with tests and we might well need to find them at the same time. And that increases the uh, time taken. Nice. And so it, it's, but, I mean, uh, surely yeah. there shouldn't be that many people coming in, should there, at this point? 8,000 per day, really? I count. Well, that's yeah. no less, really, than it was before this ban came in. Because when we were talking about that, I remember you saying there was 10,000 a day coming in. So it's yeah. only dropped by 2,000. Well, yes, but but that's um, a, a reflection of the fact that people still need to travel for mm. family emergencies, for professional reasons, um, for education. Um, there's all sorts of um, purposes why people do need to travel, and it's it, it does seem to be that you know, eight thousand is probably the the absolute lowest that we're going to get. Mm. Um, bear in mind that um, uh, the UK border force basically says there's. 15,000 people coming into the UK every day, but you can take 5,000 of those out of the equation because they're all hauliers coming in, particularly yeah. to Dover and to Folkestone. Yeah. So 10,000 people a day, vast majority of them at um, uh, Heathrow, uh, and clearly tiny numbers. Just imagine if you multiply that uh, arriving number by 10 or 20 to bring yeah. it up to what, what a, a normal day would be. Um, well, the system as it is cannot work. No, so it would, you'd be there only, all weekend, wouldn't you? Uh, you, you yes, I mean, and you'd actually get to the stage, Mike, where you get planes arriving from Guernsey and other places are available, mm. and they might be told, well, in fact, of course, Guernsey wouldn't need to go through passport control, but anyway, they'd be told, stay on the plane, stay on the plane because yeah. there isn't room in the in, in the arrivals hall to cope, cope with you. So, you know, if we can't cope now, what are the chances? Well, the Dear only man. way of getting away forward is to 
greatly reduce the uh, requirements for people arriving in the UK. But it's a right old muddle. It really is. Sounds like you better stay in a dungeon of doom for a bit longer then. <laughs> yeah, I certainly will do. Yes, at least there's no howling gale here. No, yet. very much. Very um, much she so. gets here a bit later. Yes. <laughs> he quipped. Sorry. Simon, very well done. Thank you very much indeed. Simon Calder with some rather bad news there about the systems creaking at Heathrow already when they've got 8,000 passengers. As he said, imagine when they've got 80,000 like they normally would have or whatever the normal number is. I say the same thing about the roads here in London, because since all of the sort of surreptitious work has been done uh, by Mr Khan uh, and his minions trying to uh, make Britain uh, basically a complete paradise for pedestrians and cyclists, right? If the levels of traffic return to what they were before the shutdown, before the lockdown, we are going to be in one hell of a traffic jam and you won't be able to go anywhere at all. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Let us go straight to Helen Dale now without further ado. Helen, a very good uh, morning to you. Good morning, Mike. How are you? Very well indeed. Happy to see that uh, you put out, um, I think you put out a tweet a bit earlier in the week saying that uh, you certainly would like to talk about almost anything apart from uh, the dreaded uh, Sussex scenario in California. I'm sorry, I find those, I know you prevail, and I don't think it hurts your listeners to know this, you prevailed upon me to talk about them last week when I had actually prepared to talk about the budget, because I'm quite good at sums, Mm. so budget is good. But I honestly find those two, and I will leave it at this, talking about them and just thinking about them to be slightly less interesting than naval fluff collecting. <laughs> yes, well, listen, I, and, and like all great defenders of free speech, I defend your right to say so. Uh, well, so if we will move <laughs> swiftly on and never mention them again uh, until you've, you're off the air. And let's talk a bit about the justice system, though, because obviously you're familiar with, with many different justice systems. You've worked in Scotland, where their system is slightly different from the one in England. Obviously, Australia, uh, slightly different again. Um, I've been in America, where, where obviously it's, it's a very different system altogether. But the, the question, I suppose, this morning is, it, was Chris Philp right to say longer jail terms don't stop crime? No, he was wrong. But I need to explain why he was wrong, because okay. there is one important part of his claim that is true. Basically, longer jail sentences for certain classes of offenders do stop crime. Mm. What longer jail sentences don't do is deter, Mm. or as a general rule, they don't deter. But it's important to understand that 
as a general rule, most punishments don't actually deter. Even the most serious one among them, which still exists in some countries like the United States, the death penalty. Mm. There is an enormous amount of evidence in criminology, criminological research, to show that the punishments that do deter tend to be very swift and they tend to be physical. So the floggings like you see in Singapore or in Islamic countries. Mm. But even there, those punishments don't deter unless they're swift. And the problem with a very swift justice system is it makes mistakes. It's sloppy, fast and sloppy. Think of move fast and break things, the Mm. Facebook thing, which is one of the reasons why the United States has gradually abandoned the death penalty not because there still isn't a strong thirst for vengeance in among many Americans and particularly religious conservatives, mm. but because the evidence began to pile up that the only way to ensure you didn't execute innocent people or people who hadn't committed the crime may have committed others, people who were not guilty, basically, because mm. there's a difference between not guilty and innocent in the criminal law. It became clear that the death penalty was not deterring mm. However, what all of the punishments do that, and I'll use the technically correct term that criminologists use, what all of the more serious punishments do, like imprisonment and execution, and some forms of very rigorous tracking and tagging do this as well, is they incapacitate. Now, incapacitate is a fancy criminologist's word for protect because prison has four roles or punishment has four roles of which prison is the the leading example. Mm. It's meant to deter, it's meant to rehabilitate, it's meant to punish, and it's meant to protect. Now, as should be reasonably obvious, those four things can fight with each other. And also different categories of offenders have different patterns of offensive behaviour. Now, The legislation has changed in terms of upping sentences or possible sentences because we don't have mandatory sentences in in this country. But in terms of upping sentences for serious sex offenders like rapists, Mm. that's actually a good idea because we know quite a lot about the characteristics of rapists now. And the key takeaway with rapists is that they are recidivists. It's a crime of recidivism. Mm. So you're dealing with the class of offender where they keep engaging in the behaviour. Yes, because presumably one of the reasons why you would argue for longer sentences is not necessarily to deter others, but to protect the public as well. Because if you are somebody who commits that kind of crime, you don't want to be uh, letting them out so, so they can commit more of it. Yes, and the the thing is, when you talk about recidivism and rape, the general, when I went through the system and I did, I... I studied this at master's level at Oxford in in 2009. So it's a few years ago, the the organisations that do things like the British Crime Survey or the Crime Survey at England and Wales may have more recent data. But I went through the the rule of thumb with rapists was there were relatively few of them. Mm. So the feminists are wrong when they do the whole all men are potential rapists type thing. That's not true. But the men that do it are recidivists. Mm. So much so that the average number of rapes being committed across a male 
sexual offender, serious sexual offenders lifetime was when I went through the system was six and they weren't being apprehended until the third one, mm. which meant that you had two unpunished rapes go running around out there for a variety of reasons, failure to re report, mm. failure to press charges, right. all the things that, that, the various the, the the this is where the feminists are right where they talk about people not pressing charges or not wanting to report or cases falling over because of lack of evidence and so on and so forth this is where they do have a point murder by contrast a recidivist murderer is a serial killer and as uh, as a, a kidnap murderer multiple killings and as we heard the police commissioner in this recent case where the accused is the uh, individual around which the allegations are swirling as a serving police mm. officer the a recidivist murderer or kidnapper is actually very rare and it's quite common and I, I remember seeing this when i was in practice to get someone in the dock on a murder charge and you go through their priors if you're um if you're the prosecution yeah. prosecuting counsel and you find a utensil and or a tiny bit of shoplifting 20 years ago mm. i mean it's recidivism of that type is quite rare with murderers but very common with rapists yeah. so this is what i mean about offenders having different characteristics but what about and the idea that if the length if the length of time that they that they are sentenced to is longer does it have any effect on whether they do it again Yes, it does, because it's protective. I mean, I don't, mean, I don't, mean, I don't mm. mean that physically, because obviously they can't do it while they're still inside, mm. but they get let out eventually. Does the fact that they've spent longer inside than they wanted to stop them from being a recidivist, in other words? It can do if they are kept in prison for so long that they basically age out of the... age out of prime criminality. Basically, imagine... And I'm going to have to draw this backwards, a graph that goes like that... Mm. And we need to talk about men. And then we need to talk about, as a subset of that, black men, because there are differential crime rates. Mm. We then need to talk about different ethnic groups that tend to perpetrate different crimes of different types in different parts of the country. But the key thing that holds them together is that prime criminality is males between the ages of 15 and 25. And when you say criminality, does that include all criminality? Yes, all criminality. So everything from what? Possession of drugs to violent crime? To, to rape and murder, yeah. yes. Uh, there are only two crimes typically, and this is not consistent, but there are only two crimes where female criminality typically or commonly exceeds male criminality. Mm. The first one is shoplifting. And the second one, and the listeners of talk radio will have a bit of a giggle at this, is actually refusal or non-payment of the BBC licence fee. Which is incredible, isn't it? Absolutely remarkable. <laughs> it's ridiculous, I yes. I mean, I understand and... as well that a lot of um, women are disproportionately sentenced to, to, to prison time for, for failing to pay council tax as well. Yes, it, it, this is a characteristic, and this is once again where the the the, the feminist organisations, some of the gender critical feminist organisations, can be good, and they do keep good da data mm. on this kind of thing, which is women getting dinged for financial crimes, like the uh, minor financial yeah. crimes. We're not talking. We're not talking 
the bearings crisis here. We're talking non-payment of the BBC licence fee. We're talking non-payment of council tax. We're talking non-payment of fixed penalty notices, that that, kind of thing. That kind of thing. But in terms of something like, say, shoplifting, I mean, most people presumably would do, uh, would say that shoplifting by and large is done by people uh, who do it out of necessity rather than out of kind of, you know, some obsession with stealing. This is the thing. With a lot of, and once again, with crime, We're now going to the characteristics of offenders, so I can do the next little interpretation thing here. Crime has a number of characteristics and people commit it for a number of reasons. A lot of crimes are opportunistic. For some people, crime must pay. Mm. That is actually quite common. The reason crime occurs at higher levels in some areas is because it it pays. In Mm. in straight economic terms, you can earn more money as a drug dealer in county lines than you can working for McDonald's. Very simple. However, for some people, crime occurs as a basis based on inclination and sex offenders, serious sex offenders fall into that category. But so do religious and political terrorists, Islamists, uh, neo-Nazis, Antifa. Mm. Mm. Now, these are people who commit crimes and it doesn't pay. Um, Extinction Rebellion with their very badly behaved protests and gluing themselves to the footpath outside the Bank of England and that kind of thing. This is now, you see, obviously I think that's a, crime that yeah, doesn't that, pay. That's an interesting <laughs> one, though, because, for example, I would imagine that most of the people involved in Extinction Rebellion, apart from the sort of hardcore anarchists, um, who are anti-globalist and all of that. Most people who go on Extinction Rebellion marches and who maybe occupy a bridge or block a road are, you know, middle-class kids. And probably if they thought they were going to be sentenced to quite a long period of time in prison, they wouldn't do it. Well, one of the things you do encounter, and this actually became the subject of controversy, I don't remember if you recall this, but Extinction Rebellion was so middle-class... In fact, I'd say upper middle class. I mean, I've never seen a crowd so white as an Extinction Rebellion protester. No. I mean, and it's a certain sort of white person. It's not the Football Lads Alliance or the EDL or or even a normal march to the Cenotaph, which is very inclusive yeah. and re- represents the, the whole country. No, uh, Extinction Rebellion are seriously, they put everybody else in the shade for poshness, yes. whether it's BLM or EDL, it doesn't matter what or anti-lockdown, any of all the protests, Extinction Rebellion yes. are the poshest. And today, funnily and- enough, there's a report out from Her Majesty's inspectors uh, who have said basically that the police are too soft on them. And, and although they cracked crack down on them a little bit the second time around last year, uh, they were way too soft on them. And I, and I suspect if they were treated more harshly and if they were sentenced to more prison time, it, it would all stop. Well, I mean, what you find with middle class people and Extinction Rebellion, and this was the subject of controversy, were caught giving very, very bad advice to people who were arrested, you know, trying to say that all the prison guards were, you know, were working class and oppressed as well and were on their side and Mm. so on and so forth. And just not understanding anything about the sort of advice you should give someone who's been arrested. And basically the Law Society and the Bar Council and all the, the relevant people just went, this is bonkers you are talking complete nonsense because one of the things i tended and i encountered this in practice is middle class people who've had no engagement with the police often don't know the most basic things to do Mm. when they are confronted by a police officer and the joke that uh, i mean my pupil master used to make about middle class people was that they're the kind of person who the policeman comes and knocks on the door and wants to have a little chat and they invite him in for a cup of tea and mm. and, and, and tell him everything, yes. which of course is what you must do, <laughs> you know. So, I mean, Extinction Rebellion, 
are a, a very distinctive sort of protest group. And yes, for many upper middle class people, just a visit from the police officer, partly because it's timely. Mm. So the, the comment that was made about the, the likelihood of being caught has a big deterrent effect, even if the crime is just a talk, talking to by the police officer, being caught uh, is of major importance for deterrence rather than the actual nature of the mm. crime. It's more or the nature of the punishment. It's being caught. Yeah. And that can, and just the talking to by a copper can, with middle class mm. kids who've never engaged with the police before, who've never been moved on, who've never been uh, had stop and search, which is a very different experience for working class people and black working class mm. people in London. Yeah. Very different. Just the talk to. Oh, yeah, that's it. They never do it again. And that's oh, all my you have goodness, I can't be an accountant or a solicitor or a right. doctor because of that. Well, yes. well exactly right. Oh. So, I mean, just to kind of uh, to finish up, Helen, on the broader point of law and order, because don't forget when this particular Conservative government was elected, it was elected on three kind of prongs. It was elected on um, getting Brexit done, um, on a sort of, sort of uh, inc increasing the difficulty uh, of people to come here from other countries without a proper legal immigration route. And thirdly, law and order. Uh, and people like, generally speaking, Conservative governments to be tough on crime. Uh, and as famously Tony Blair said, tough on the causes of crime, uh, doesn't really play for them because they want people locked up and they want more people locked up. And they want more prisons built. Um, so Chris Philp is doing, it would seem, his level best uh, to make himself look less conservative. Well, he doesn't see... And the other problem with that, if the article was reported accurately, the one that you sent me, is he doesn't understand how to disaggregate the data from criminologists. Mm. And to give... I'm going to, just before I go, if you want the data disaggregated, this is the book to read. Yes, it's very long and fat, <laughs> but it basically... Stephen Pinker explains in the course of about a third of this book how to interpret and parse criminological criminological data, mm. what deters, what doesn't, what punishments work, what doesn't, how you prevent crime, how you approach recidivist prisoners. And unfortunately for the serious sex offenders, realistically, all you can do with them is very, very long sentences because of the tendency to to, to do it again when they let out. Yes. Well, exactly um, right. And there has to be in the justice system, surely, um, not just a punishment aspect, but also a safety aspect so that the people yes. who are law-abiding citizens of the land can go out and, uh, and do their business because without getting into the ins and outs of this current case, which is all over the front pages today, there's an awful yeah. lot of women uh, who are currently, you know, afraid because of the, the way things have happened. And the and thing pretty, to remember is... Patel, uh, the Home Secretary, has actually yes. put a statement out um, saying that, uh, you know, every woman can relate to this fear that is about oh, and abroad and people should not have to fear fear. Or they shouldn't have to feel fear either. Well, yeah, and this is why you need to incapa incapacitate your sex offenders, the serious sex offenders. They need long sentences and we need to have a serious and adult conversation about the tendency to recidivism mm. amongst this this particular segment of the criminological, criminogenic yes. population, basically. Yes. I think that's absolutely For that right. reason... Good reason to, uh, to to stop it there, Helen. Thank you very much indeed, as ever. I think Chris Philp needs to have more in his head than thinking about whether or not a longer sentence is actually the way to go because it's not just about how long you sentence people for, it's about how long you protect the rest of the community for. And the whole point of being a Conservative politician uh, is that you should be in favour of protecting people 
uh, and you should be less concerned about uh, the uh, worthwhile uh, facilities that you're putting people into um, and how much of a punishment they're getting for their crime. Because clearly there are certain crimes, as Helen pointed out, uh, which are very serious and which you don't want people to commit. And you certainly don't want to continue to commit them. And if that means locking them up for a longer period of time, then I'm all for it. What about you? Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Let me just read out this tweet that Piers put out earlier on this morning. He says, I had one goal when I joined uh, Good Morning Britain, and that was to beat BBC Breakfast in the ratings. On my last day, we did it. That was down to the hard work and dedication of the whole team. They don't all agree with me. Some of them don't even like me. But we were a team and we won. Thanks, guys. I'll miss you, he says. And I'm sure uh, he won't be uh, going back over that way uh, because of the way he was treated. But you never know. Maybe he'll come over this way. I'm not saying I know anything because I don't. Uh, Let's talk to Brendan Chilton. Brendan, a very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. Now, uh, tell us, what are you doing with the Labour Party? Because Sir Keir Starmer apparently is going to turn it into the NHS Labour Party. Well, um, we have to remember, of course, uh, that the, the Labour Party did found the NHS back in uh, forty-five. Yes. So it, it should be no surprise in that respect that we, we go on about it quite a lot. Um, I thought uh, Sir Keir Starmer's uh, performance today was very polished. It was very slick. And the real test, uh, Mike, is going to be uh, what the results of these elections are going to be in May, um, whether we increase our number of Labour councillors, do better in Scotland and Wales, uh, that will ultimately be uh, the test of today's performance. Yes. I was listening to uh, John Curtis earlier on today, you know, the sophologist up in uh, the University of Strathclyde, and he was saying that he thinks the Labour Party are hopeful that the uh, the political landscape will return to a kind of the difference between left and right. I'm not sure I agree with him on that because... Um, you know, the, 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 the waters have been very muddied, haven't they, over the whole Brexit situation? We, we have indeed seen a very confusing position uh, in British politics. Uh, obviously, you know, we, we've seen a huge change in the electoral landscape as well, in that the Tories now represent uh, a large number of seats in the north of England and in the Midlands. And Labour has on the whole been reduced to holding seats in just the cities with very high student populations. Uh, if Labour is to ever stand a chance of uh, forming a majority government again, not just getting back to where we were um, a few years ago, but a majority Labour government. Uh, Labour needs to win in Scotland. We need to win in the south of England. Uh, I know the party sometimes forgets that the south of England exists, but we do. Um, And under Blair, of course, uh, Labour had many seats in the South and we had that majority. So that's what I think we need to be aiming for. Yeah, well, I mean, the biggest stronghold for Labour now really is London, isn't it? London, Manchester and places like Brighton as well, as I say, quite metropolitan young cities. Um, But we can continue to stack up as many votes as we like in those areas. We could get 100 percent of the vote in Lambeth and in Islington and places like that. But unless we start winning back those marginal seats, the old red wall seats and southern seats as well, we will not form a government. I mean, does it worry you, Brendan, that the, the polls would show you so far behind? I mean, they're showing Sir Keir Starmer uh, to have a party uh, which is even less popular in some places than it was when Jeremy Corbyn was running it. I think, uh, to be fair to Keir Starmer, as you know, Mike, I always try to be fair uh, when I come on your show. Indeed. Labour should be doing better. Mm. Labour should be doing better. So I'll start by saying that. But at the same time, as you can see, the sun shining on my face uh, through the window here. We've got now a path out of lockdown. The vaccine programme's going really, really well. I would expect any government of any colour right now to get some sort of boost in the polls. Uh, I think that's kind of a given. Um, The key test, I think, is going to come 
later in the year when, you know, the decisions on the budget uh, for things like universal credit, how the high streets do post recovery. I think that's when the real political landscape will change. And of course, whether Boris can deliver his levelling up agenda. But for Labour, we need to be aiming much higher than we are now. It frankly is not acceptable that we are trailing the Tories after 10 years of a Conservative government, uh, 120,000 dead and the worst recession in 300 years. We should be doing better. Yes, and that is puzzling in a way, isn't it? Because the trouble for Sir Keir Starmer is he has often get uh, he has to often get up at the dispatch box on a Wednesday and kind of invent something to have a row about. I mean, I thought actually today, this, this week, with the NHS Nurses um, uh, Pay Award of 1%, he actually had something he could hang on to. But he's obviously decided that's going to be, uh, in some ways, a campaign slogan for him. Yeah, I mean, I think a, a lot of the opinion polls are showing that a majority of the country actually support nurses and NHS workers getting an increased pay award this year. I kind of agree. Uh, they've had a pretty tough year. But I'd also say this. A lot of people in the private sector have also had a bloody rotten year. Yeah. Uh, they've been living with, a, in many cases, a 20% pay cut uh, and their businesses have been closed. Mm. So over the course of this campaign, this was the first of many events that the Labour Party are doing uh, in the course of this campaign. I want to see Labour talking more to business owners, to small business owners in our high streets and to self-employed people because there's 8 million self-employed people in this country. They've all got to vote and we need to talk to them. Yes. And, I mean, I think he has to be careful as well, Keir, about making too much politics to do with the NHS because, I mean, you might say that people think they should get a pay rise, but a lot of people uh, that I've spoken to said if there's a threat of a strike here, that will lose every single piece of credibility and every single piece of sympathy that, that Britain has for the NHS. If people go on strike... Uh, who are working in the NHS, that will kill it. Well, a strike right now would be absolutely disastrous because yeah. the NHS is fundamental to the rollout of the vaccine, uh, which we're hoping will bring an end to this uh, ghastly lockdown that we're all experiencing. Um, I noticed that Witty and the, the other members of the gang were talking about, you know, new surges and things over the summer. Well, you know, no, we said we're coming I out know. of lockdown. We need to come out of lockdown. Right. Um, but the NHS should not be striking. They should be carrying on doing the work they're doing. I'd, I'd hope on this the government will budge and uh, award them the extra pay rise. But under, I do not think the NHS staff should be striking. And I no. certainly would not support a strike as a Labour member. But what would you support in terms of a pay rise then as a percentage? Well, I think the proposal that was initially budgeted for was around 2%, wasn't yeah. it? Um, so I'd be happy to go along with what was recommended by the profession. Um, if that's what was budgeted for and that's what they recommended, I'd quite happily accept that. I think that means it's around another uh, 500 million, which would a total cost of 1 billion. Now, I think we've got to have a look generally at public sector pay, uh, because yes, as we've discussed before, Mike, this country's borrowing levels are, are going through the roof. You yeah. know, what's another billion? <laughs> well, <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I mean, that, there is there is that argument. But unfortunately, yeah. you know, as Rishi Sunak has said, you know, he's going to have to put some taxes on people at some point or other. Uh, and I think a lot of people's sympathies for the NHS, again, would go straight out the window if they're suddenly finding themselves paying more tax in order to fund it. I, I, I don't disagree with you, but I was, be, I was being a bit flippant. No, there. I know. But um, yeah, yeah, I think... Um, I think that's right. And we also need to look, as I've said before, at some of the very high salaries in the public sector. Uh, there are some people in local government, in the NHS and in education, in many academies, for example, earning hundreds of thousands of pounds. And I'm thinking to myself quite often nowadays, 
what are they doing for that money? Mm. Uh, because where I, I know you're a man of Sussex, Mike, I'm a man of Kent. My roads aren't getting any better. No. My access to uh, my local surgery isn't getting any better. Um, so I question why these very, very well-paid executives in these areas need that amount of money. Um, but you are right. At some point, we, we've got to start paying this money down. The Chancellor did outline uh, some measures last week. Um, I personally think that we're going to have to probably go harder than what he suggested because I'm not entirely convinced that the moment these restrictions are lifted, the huge spending event's going to take place. A lot of people have built up a bit of savings over the past year. Mm. They're looking at their bank balances and thinking, you know what, it's quite nice to have a few thousand pounds sitting in there for a rainy day. Um, So I, I don't think we're out the woods just yet. Yes, exactly right. And as far as the rest of his uh, kind of ideas go, um, to be honest, none of them seem to be cutting through massively to the vast population of this country. Um, I think a lot of people still don't really know what Keir Starmer stands for. I think that's fair. To, uh, I think that's a fair assessment, Mike. I think, again, and I've said this before, and I don't want to sound like I'm repeating myself, but I will anyway. Um, he, he has become leader in the middle of a pandemic. It, it hasn't been the normal politics that we're used to he hasn't been able to go around and get around the country and meet people so to be fair to the guy it's been a difficult year however now that we are coming out of that whatever the results in may i'm hoping labor do well Uh, i think it's going to be a difficult election because of the vaccine bounce but over Mm. the course of the next few years as we build up to the general election we need to see labor rapidly moving up those poll rankings and if we don't we're going to have to fundamentally ask ourselves what's gone wrong for us as a party Mm. Are we talking to the right people or are we still just talking to ourselves? Yes. I mean, nobody really in Scotland gives Labour much of a hope of making any gains. The only question up there seems to be whether or not the SNP have shot themselves enough in the foot uh, to sort of hobble themselves and whether they uh, get into power is not in question. It's a question of whether they get into power. Absolutely. They don't need to do any kind of coalition if it's a minority government. But Labour have pretty much lost Scotland, it seems to me. And, And I think they've also lost the north of England. I think certainly in Scotland, uh, let's be completely honest, Labour is in a dire position. We've come up in the polls recently just a little bit, but it's nowhere near enough to get us back to those heydays of when, you know, the belt from Edinburgh right the way down to Glasgow was a sea of red. Mm. Um, That is alarming because Labour's decline in Scotland has been directly linked in parallel to the rise of the cause of Scottish independence. Um, If the union breaks, Labour will be in part responsible because it was that old Labour Scotland that kept the country together. And as the voters have abandoned Labour up there and gone for the SNP, we've got to shoulder some of that. I think what Labour needs to do to win back in Scotland is to become a emphatically pro-unionist party. This Mm. constant sitting on the fence in the middle. Well, you know, we might have a referendum. We might support there being one. No, 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 no. Let's have a position on this for once. We are against a referendum. We are pro the union and we will defend it right to the end. Mm. And what about a measure of how well Sir Keir uh, is doing? Because obviously this is his first electoral test. Is there a figure in mind that the party has in terms of a gain, uh, in terms of uh, uh, you know percentage of, of wins that the, that the party has set? And if he doesn't make it, uh, will that be the end of him? Uh, I'm not privileged to the uh, straight strategy and the plans of central office. That's Mike, outrageous, own, Brendan. Why not? It, I know. If I was leader, the whole country would be red, mate, I can tell you. <laughs> but the, <laughs> not but where I live, <laughs> But all I'd say is this. I think the test for Labour is in every part of this country, Labour should be making gains. This is the first national election since 2019. OK, mm. I know they're local elections. 
But in every region and every nation of this country, Labour needs to be making gains. Losses are unacceptable. And is there any particular target on the day? I know it's going to be difficult because with local elections, you know, it sometimes takes a while to, tell, to tally them all up. Yeah. But, I mean, what are you looking at as a kind of bellwether, if you like, as, as if, 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 say, if Labour's won over here, then that's good news? If Labour are winning back in the red wall, uh, those seats that we lost, good news. If Labour is making gains in Scotland, that's also good news. It's quite difficult to put an exact number on it because there are so many thousands of seats up for a... Uh, election this year in local government but i would like to see net gains for labor i'd say that's my success i'm I'm not so bothered about you know how big sadiq khan's vote share is going to be in london because we all know he's going to win yeah Uh, the test is going to be do we win back in the red wall and are we making gains in scotland for me if i've got to pin it on two things i'd say those two things okay we will keep an eye on those areas and brendan thank you very much indeed brendan chilton there uh, who's the ceo of course of the independent business network he's labor leave as well uh he's a very very uh, interesting commentator on all matters to do with brexit of course and also uh, to do with labor keir starmer uh, is basically pinning his um his hopes on sympathising with the NHS and saying a vote for Labour is a vote for the NHS, presumably promising that if he was ever to be the Prime Minister, he'd just keep giving everybody the NHS a pay rise. Well, it doesn't work like that, mate, I'm afraid. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.